So let's turn uh, now to First uh, Peter chapter 4. We're picking up in verse 7 this week. I shall just read through um, again this next section and then we'll pray. <coughs> the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace... Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to your word, we pray that you would bless our time in it, that we, as we look at the text, would see what your spirit has inspired, that he might illuminate it in our hearts, that we might understand your word, that we might see you clearly, understand you better, know you better, see your glory, and that we might be transformed by it, that we might evermore bring glory to your holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. It feels a bit like that with First Peter, that we're coming to an end. Notice that when we come to the last verse we're covering today in verse 11, that we have a little uh, benediction and an amen at the end. And it really does seem that this whole long extended section where he's been talking about being holy in the midst of suffering, enduring suffering as Christ endured suffering, all the specific situations of, of uh, masters and slaves and government and, and husbands and wives, all those particular situations that he's emphasizing the, the right way to suffer and then coming out of that how we live our lives as those who, um, as those who suffer, as those who endure trials in such a way as to bring glory to God and bring attention to the distinction in our lives compared to those around us. And the last few weeks we've seen the, um, the glory of Christ over all of creation, both seen and unseen. And then last time we were coming into chapter 4, and the conclusion really of this, as I say, long extended section, since therefore, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That We need to arm ourselves. As I said, we're in a, we're in a war zone right now. We need to arm ourselves as a weapon to be thinking the way that Christ thought, to be approaching our lives the way he approached his, that we would be those people who would go to Gethsemane, who would go to the cross if need be, and we would do so without reviling, without threatening, without sinning, because we trust God. We trust God that when he makes us walk through things that we don't want to walk through, that he is still good and he is still sovereign. We trust him. And so that is how we want to live our lives. We want to think the way that Christ thought. And so there was last time some distinctives in the way that we live. And he ended in verse 6 last time. 
um, with a reference to those who had, have lived and have gone and have, have been judged. And that then leads us nicely to this reminder in verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand. Now, there is so much debate as to what this phrase exactly means. Some would say that it is very specific to that community that Peter is writing to, that as we saw in our studies through the book of Hebrews, that there is the coming judgment of 70 AD when Jerusalem is going to um, collapse and be destroyed and... um, that there will uh, be a salvation from that judgment for the Christians. And some, some think that that's what's being referred to here. Certainly it's a Jewish community, but I just don't see them as being in Jerusalem. I think the phrase, the end of all things, certainly seems to be a bit broader. The end of Jerusalem is not all things, it's, it's Jerusalem. And I think that he is talking here about the consummation of the end of the age. That's what it seems to be saying. The the problem with that and the reason that people are a bit iffy about taking it that way is it's been an awfully long time since he wrote it. When we talk about the end being at hand, it's a bit like in the Gospels where we're told the kingdom of God is at hand. The idea is it's within reach. And the end of all things is within reach. And yet here we are in the best part of 2,000 years later and we're still waiting. And... I think for us, there is clearly, not just here, but in multiple other places in Scripture, there is clearly an emphasis in Scripture on the imminency of the end, the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. We need to be aware that we could have Christ's return before this sermon ends. Be a good place to be if he did, wouldn't it? But... At the same time, we need to be aware that another century and another century and another century and another century can go by and he may not have returned. He is sovereign and he will come in his own good time. We know from elsewhere in scripture that he delays his return so that more might hear and more might be saved. We know that there is a time when, as Paul describes it in Romans, the fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. This period of church history where God is predominantly saving Gentiles, there is a remnant of Jewish believers, but predominantly the nation is in blindness since 70 AD. That God has people that he has chosen that he's going to save. And so, as it were, the doors remain open for that to happen. But we do not know that time. We simply don't. And so we live under a doctrine of imminency, meaning that Christ could come back any moment. And again and again, Scripture wants us to live in light of that. We need to live our lives as if it could be over any moment. And it may be the return of Christ, or it may be our death. We had, you know, obviously L.A. was greatly affected last week by, um, or certainly many people in L.A., by the the very sudden, untimely death of a sporting superstar. Um, And, you know, these things, to me, more than anything, are just reminders that you just never know when your time is up. My heart just aches for those who know the gospel, have heard the gospel, but haven't bowed the knee because they don't think that now's the time. They don't think that, that they think they're going to get more time. They, and they just don't know. We, we have no idea. 
And so Peter is creating as he, and again, we've got the amen coming at the end, so we're kind of wrapping up this whole extended section on suffering, and he's, he's giving us this reminder. We need to live our lives aware that the end could come at any time. Whether that's death, whether that's the return of Christ, the, the, things are too important to be messing around, to be distracted, to, to have a life where we pursue our own comforts, we pursue, pursue our own rights, we pursue our own well-being more than we pursue the things of God. It's just not worth it. And so he says, therefore, because of this, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, he's already spoken about this. Um, really, if you go way, way back, remember we had those who've been here the whole journey. We had, we had that very rich theological foundation in First Peter in the first few verses up to verse 11, uh, 12. Then in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, and he talks then about how we live because of this theological foundation. And really everything from chapter 1, verse 13, right the way through to this section, is dealing with that. Because God has, has saved us, because he's given us a new birth, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the hope that we have, we need to live a certain way, and that way is going to impact us in how we live, even in the midst of terribly unjust suffering. And that's really what the whole thing's been doing. So when he refers here at, uh, this, towards the end of this section, again to being self-controlled and sober-minded, then we see like a little bookends of this whole section. He began with sober-mindedness, and now as he wraps it up, there is that reminder of sober-mindedness. Now, sober-minded, I think it's worth repeating. We need to understand this, and I think, I think also at the end of this section, it's a little bit clearer perhaps for us as well. But we have the expression today still, sober as a judge. The, the idea is that a, not, not that a judge doesn't pull out a bottle of whiskey from his desk midway through a day's work, although he shouldn't do that either. The, the idea of, of sober-minded isn't so much to do with alcohol, though clearly, if you look at last week's passage, there is a link there in the sense of he's talking about drunkenness in the previous section, and we shouldn't be living that way, and now in contrast, we should be sober-minded. But the main point really is this, is that a judge is supposed to exercise judgment not on the basis of feelings but on the basis of facts now sometimes feelings do play a part but only when the law allows it a judge could be told you know the rules could say that this crime a person could could receive a sentence from one year to five years and they will take in all the other circumstances to to make a, a judgment but what a judge shouldn't do is they shouldn't say oh that's my friend therefore i'll give them a lighter sentence Someone's prepared to slip me money under the table, therefore I'll make them innocent. That sort of thing shouldn't be going on. That a judge takes things very seriously, takes their responsibility seriously, and they make judgments on the basis of the evidence before them. And that really for us as Christians is our lives. And sadly, we find ourselves in an era that is more feeling and emotionally driven, certainly within the church, than almost any era that I have any recollection of, you know. I, I mean, 
I'm not sure it's something that was a, as much of a problem, you know, in generations past. But I mean, we have entire churches whose whole basis of, you know, what does Christian living look like? Okay, this is what Christian living looks like. He said, you, you, you wait on the Spirit to give you direction. Which is just a shorthanded way of saying, do what you feel like. Because ultimately, their understanding of what the Holy Spirit says is, is determined by how they feel. Or I'll go away and pray. Hmm, I really feel that God would have me do this. Or I really feel God would have me do that. Well, the Holy Spirit, we do know what he says because he inspires scripture and he wrote for us chapter 4 and verse 7 and he says, be sober-minded. Which is the exact opposite. It is not to be driven by our feelings. Many, many years ago, I was in a really um, dodgy church um, and uh, it was very much that kind of way. And I was there for about, I think about four or five years. And while I was there, the first year, everything was about this one area of doctrine. And then the next year, everybody was really into this area of doctrine. And then the next year, everybody was into this area of doctrine. And, and, they, and I'm not even making this up. They would literally say, we need, to, we need to be aware of where the Spirit's blowing. What new thing he's doing. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If I am still privileged to be your pastor in 20, 30, 40 years' time, I won't be doing anything new. I'll be doing the same thing. I'll be teaching the Bible verse by verse. I'll be opening up the Word, explaining what it means, and allowing God's Holy Spirit to do the work of transforming your lives, because I can't do it. I can't transform my own life. I need God to do that for me. And he does it through the work and the power of his Holy Spirit, through the preaching of his Word. That's why we encourage you to be in your word daily, to be studying, to be listening to other sermons from other people. We need to, you need to be you know, submerging yourself in the word of God because that's how God changes people. And it's no good, you know, Paul talks about how people are blown to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. That's how my church was back in those days. It was a church where we were blown to and fro by every wind and wave and doctrine. Oh, we're going this way. Oh, we're going that way. What Peter speaks of here is people who are self-controlled and sober-minded. And when you want to quit something, to do something, to, 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 to respond in a way that's going to make you more comfortable, more happy, more entertained, then you have to be sober in your thinking. Not just instinctively reacting, but saying, what does God's word say here? What should I do? Look, we've been through chapters in this book about suffering. Entire chapters. And does any one of us want to suffer now any more than we did at the beginning? I certainly don't. There isn't going to be, when suffering comes into my life, this instinctive reaction where I say, Oh, hallelujah, suffering. Praise you, Lord, for your suffering. I'm so glad. I just love suffering. It's my favorite thing, suffering. Oh, what joys. Do you know what? I had a period where, where you were, were taking away suffering for a couple of months and it was just miserable. I want more suffering. Bring it on. Yeah, that's not an instinctive reaction. We're not going to do that. And yet, James 1, we need to consider it joy. 
And yet we need to understand that when we say, oh, not, not more, I can't, I can't do this again now. That we know that God is sovereign, that he is good, and that he's going to use these circumstances to transform our lives, to get our focus on Christ, and to make us live in a way that will bring him glory. That requires a life of self-control and sober-mindedness. When, when we suffer, we want to revile those who revile us. We want to curse those who curse us. We want to react against those who cause us harm. Do we trust God? That's the kind of sober thinking where we put aside our pain, our grief, our frustration, our hurt, our brokenness, and we just put it aside and we say, Lord, help me think clearly in the midst of this wild rampage of emotions. Help me think clearly and help me live purely and give me the strength to live according to your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. See, this is Christian living. And I, I, it grieves me that so many churches are teaching people that God speaks through the feelings of your heart. I tell you what, I've, we've been studying, what, First Peter for how many months now? Six plus months? And I look at what I have to do in circumstances, and I want to weep as much now as I ever did. But I've got to still do it. I have to still do it. I have to trust God. And I am truly, truly thankful of this reminder from God's word that when I don't respond correctly, that the primary problem is that I don't trust my God enough. And if I don't trust him enough, it's because I don't know him well enough. And it's a reminder to get back to his word again. And I pray it is for you guys too. And so, we do not have time to be living in a way that is not in accordance with the holiness that we've been called to. We don't have time to live in a way that gives us comfort. There is too much going on. There is too much at stake. And therefore, we are going to live lives that are both uh, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, we saw this reference very much earlier. Do you remember in the section with husbands? It, it talked about husbands how they were to treat their wives at a, such a time as, you know, uh, this is chapter 3 and verse 7, likewise, so in a similar situation, the wives, if your husbands are treating you badly, how do you live? And here, husbands, if your wives are treating you badly, how do you live? And he said, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's a very similar thing here, being sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's taking the principle that he gave to husbands, and he's applying it to us all. And the principle is this. And again, as I said to you in chapter th uh, 3 and verse 7, there are no abracadabras in the Bible. It's not a case of, I'm not answering your prayer, I'm not answering your prayer, I'm not answering your prayer. Oh, now you're sober-minded, I'm answering your prayer. 
You know, it, it doesn't work quite like that. God blesses people in the midst of their sin, and God holds things back from people even when they're, when they're not walking in sin. So I think we need to be a, a little bit more realistic about this. When he says, for the sake of your prayers, he, he means, as I said in chapter 3 and verse 7, simply this, that the husband is going to be praying that the wife who is hurting him would, would change, that she would, she would no longer behave that way. And what Peter is saying is, you need to respond to her correctly to best allow that to happen. Exactly the same principle he was teaching the wives with regards to their husbands. He's treating you this way? Well, it may make no difference, but the, what you need to be doing is living the right way, and it might then change your husband. And here he's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you are praying for God to work in your life, then be self-controlled and sober-minded, and then those prayers are more likely to be answered. Do you know, I, again and again, I, 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 I reminded of, um, it was a particular day I used to teach at a Bible college, I've, I've mentioned this to regulars before, but the average age of the student was about 19, and uh, they were sort of a fairly young bunch, and I used to see it a lot, but I remember one day in particular just kind of feeling a bit distant and and sitting at the back of a, of a hall with about 100 plus people in it. And it was just a time of worship. And some of these kids were like, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you'll lead, or some sort of song along those lines. And I can just, I remember looking at it, not with cynicism, but just with realism. Just thinking, a whole bunch of you with your hands in the air right now aren't going to be walking with Jesus in 10 years' time. A whole bunch of you are going to have the statement that you've just sung tested in ways that you could not possibly imagine. And through the joys of social media, I've kept in touch with a lot of them, and I can tell you that a very significant number of people I knew from there aren't even walking with the Lord anymore. Trials, difficulties, temptations, And so I want us to be aware that when we pray things like, sanctify me, Lord. Lead me. May I walk in your ways. Transform me, Lord, that I might bring glory to your name. I think they're, I think they're good prayers. I'm not being critical of those young people saying, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Lead me in your way and all of this stuff. I'm not, I'm not being critical. I'm just simply saying, though they are great prayers, please can we understand how scary they are? That God wants us to bow the knee before him and go where he would lead us. But as we've seen in 1 Peter... It's his calling for us to suffer like our Savior suffered. That Jesus, when he was describing what it meant to be a disciple, said that we had to deny ourselves, that's that self-control, to take up our cross as a picture of suffering and to follow him, to go where he has gone through that pathway. And I don't think we have any business saying... I'm going to follow you, Jesus, if what we really want is a comfortable life where we go to church and we make friends 
and God blesses us in areas of our lives so that we can give him thanks. That, that's not what's going on here. What we're doing is we're bowing our knee before the sovereign God of the universe who will bring about his plans even to the extent of sending his own son to the cross to die a sinless death for the punishment of our sins. And with that same God that we are saying, I will entrust myself to you as the Son entrusted himself to you wherever you lead me. And we just need to acknowledge how brutal those kind of prayers are. We must not do it willy-nilly. We must not do it because we like the melody of a song and because it's in the right key and we're kind of emotionally moved and so we're going to react emotionally. We have to be sober-minded and say, this is the Christian life. It's just so glorious. It's so wonderful. And it's so potentially brutal. But I will bow that knee because I will trust you, God. I will trust you in everything because the end is near and one day I will have given account of my life and there is nothing that I can accomplish apart from you. There is nothing I will lose out on if I seek to follow you. We've got to believe it, guys. And we've got to bow the knee. And so... Let's be praying these prayers. Please, let's be praying these prayers. Let's be praying that God's will will be done. But let us understand that it may not be quite the wondrous joy day by day that we might expect. And thus we are going to be self-controlled and sober-minded that God might work through us to bring about these prayers that he will be glorified. Now, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, if we're going to be self-controlled, we're going to be sober-minded, we're going to give, live lives of discipline, lives that are distinct, as we've seen throughout First Peter, that above all else, that is going to be worked out in love. That's what we saw uh, specifically in uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, where there was that little summary after the specifics of the previous chapters. And again, he emphasizes it in this summary at the end of the section. He says, above all, above everything else, you've got to keep loving one another earnestly. Now, just to be clear, the one another is not the entire world. Yes, I am aware of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And yes, everybody is your neighbor. And yes, in the world of the internet, that may look very different today than it did at the time of the Good Samaritan. And I accept and understand all of those things. But again and again in scripture, the command to love is so often attached to love one another, where contextually the one another is your fellow Christian. There is a bond between us that is far more serious and important than we often realize. We talk about the bond of blood and family, and I understand that and I accept that, and I think there's some biblical credence to it. But as much as there is the, the genetic uh, line from my family's heritage that runs in the blood through my veins... There is also within me the Holy Spirit. He is the seal of God guaranteeing that God will complete his work in me unto redemption. And you have the same Holy Spirit if you have trusted Christ as well dwelling within you. That's the context. That's what we're going to come in the next couple of verses. 
And that bond of the Holy Spirit, that fellowship of the Spirit, that unity of the Spirit, is something that goes on and on and on in Scripture. Paul in Ephesians, we saw it again and again and again. We see it elsewhere. There is a bond between us. And I'm sure that you don't like everybody in the church. I mean, this church is quite nice. It's relatively easy. But you don't like everyone in your family either. You still have them over for Thanksgiving. You don't get to choose your family, they say. But that goes for church family to some degree as well. And yet we're called to love each other as family. And so this, this love specifically for each other, how we love each other, um, is something that we need to be doing earnestly. Again, there is that picture of, of striving and working and energy. We need to make an active effort. It's not going to be, do you know, I was just sitting around the other day, putting my feet up, and I, I just happened to love someone. It just kind of happened. I don't know why. Well, you know, just, I, I was there one minute, the next minute I, was, I love someone. Boom. It doesn't happen that way. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to be self-controlled, be sober-minded. I don't particularly want to do this today, but I need to love this person. I need to put aside my own desires, and I need to walk as Christ walked. It's that whole kind of process again. And that is going to be exposed and expressed most clearly in the love that we have for one another. Now, the second half of the verse I need to be clear about um, uh, because it's so often misunderstood. Since love covers a multitude of sins. It's one of those phrases that has just kind of bled out of the Bible into society at large. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's one of those things that you can say very safely in the midst of unbelievers and they're all, yeah, yeah, love covers a multitude. They like, they like that idea. But what they mean by it is not what the scripture means by it. Normally, when people use the expression, love covers a multitude of sins, what they mean is, I've been really, really bad lots and lots of times, but I'm doing lots of loving things, so that kind of balances out, you know? Let's just be really clear on what the gospel is, guys. We are hideously wicked, we are vile beyond comprehension, and there is no hope for us in any way, shape, or form other than the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins. Your love does not cover your sins. If it, if it could, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die for you. Your love is not, there's not this yin and yang. You're not like, well, I had a pretty good, pretty good Monday, so the things I did on Sunday, well, well we can leave those. My, my love has covered those up. That's not what it's saying. And that's what society means, and I think sometimes that bleeds back into the church. That's not what the passage is saying, even remotely. When it's talking about love covering a multitude of sins, what it's saying, just to be very clear, is this. If I need to love you, if I need to speak into your life words of encouragement, if I speak into your life words of love, if I make a sacrifice to help you in certain situations, if we are here as a church loving one another, then what we're doing is we're supporting one another and we're helping to prevent other people from falling into sin. I think the idea of love covering a multitude of sins is really contextual. I think this becomes clearer in a, in a parallel, we can turn that in a parallel passage in James. James 5.20 ends with a similar concept. 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. If you've got someone who's wandering off, you've got someone who's a Christian, do you know, I've got to be careful here, but I see this all the time. I see Christians slipping into sin and people not saying anything because they want to maintain their friendships. I see Christians overtly sinning and other Christians saying nothing to protect their friendship. Shame on you. Don't you for a second pretend that has got anything to do with love. That is simply you wanting a more comfortable life. Love decrees that we call sin, sin, And we lovingly, gently, with a heart of brokenness, not aggressively or unpleasantly or legalistically or or boringly, but, but we just come to that person and say, brother, sister, do you not see the harm this is going to cause to you, to, to the, to the sake of the gospel, to those who look to you, to those you could witness to? Do you not see the work that God could do through you that you're essentially having a time out from? Do you really want to drink from a broken cistern when there's a living water from you to, 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 to quench your thirst? Have you forgotten how glorious Christ is and how much joy can be found in him? Do you not realize that he can satisfy your every need? Have you you lost focus on what a wonderful savior you have? You see, that's love. And that will cover a multitude of sins. Because when someone falls away, and when someone sins, and when sin is allowed to slip into a congregation, then what happens is that sin then spreads, and that sin then spreads. That's why Paul refers to sin in the church as yeast, like yeast in bread. Now I know, you know, you're Americans, not many of you bake. But, you know, if you might know a little bit about baking, enough to know that you put the yeast into the, into the loaf and it rises, not just in one place, but throughout. That when there is a little yeast, the entire loaf is infected. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about yeast or leaven in the older versions. He's talking about the fact that when sin comes in, it impacts, it affects everyone. How do we remedy that? By becoming harsh, stick-wielding fundamentalists? By love. By loving people enough to step in and say, how can I help you turn your path from this sin? By loving people enough to, to warn them of their sin. What's the first thing we do when we see someone in sin? The Bible's clear. We, we come to them and we confront them. And if they don't respond, we get some other people. We say, look, I don't want, I'm not here to gossip, but this person has clearly sinned and they won't listen to me and my heart is broken for the consequences of this. Would you come with me? Would you come with me and speak love to this person? That we might save them? That we might somehow prevent this multitude of sins that will come from this? See, love isn't easy, friends. Love is not easy. 
Sometimes it's very messy, very difficult, very awkward. But it needs to be done. There are a multitude of sins that will be prevented by love. So let us therefore love. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We can do this quicker. It's pretty simple. Be hospitable. Whether that's opening your home or whether it's just welcoming people in various ways. But be people who are, who are hospitable. There is no place for being a hermit in the Christian faith. We don't get to turn up to church on Sunday and hide ourselves away for the rest of the week. That's not how it happens. We have to be people, if we're going to love one another, that have a degree of hospitality. And I love this little addition. Do it without grumbling. Oh, I suppose. It just reminds me every time I hear that word of the Israelites in the wilderness. You know? Oh, no water again, huh? That's not how we want to live our Christian lives. You know, um, in Hebrews we saw about how the, the possibility of entertaining angels unaware and just how that God brings people into our lives for us to serve and that as we serve them, there is such blessing often. Think about God. Think about God for a minute, okay? Who is God? What's his heart? He is a God, above all else, who serves. He serves us through the blessing of us and the giving of gifts, and he serves us and he serves us and he serves us. I'm not saying that we should demand he serves us like the heretics do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't bow our knee and accept that we are slaves to Christ, which we are and which we should. But what I am saying is that God is constantly serving us. That was the nature of Christ. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. It is God's nature to be served. Why does God serve us? Because everything works together to glorify God. God is glorified through him serving others because when he serves us, when he blesses us, when he answers our prayers, when he gives us good things, what do we do? We say, thank you, God. You are a good God. The serving of God, him serving us, gives him glory. And I think that we need to understand that when we have the opportunity to serve one another, it may be untimely, it might be problematic, it may be unpleasant, but as we serve, there is an opportunity for God to be glorified. And there is an opportunity for him to bless us. Do we really think that our way of life, where we want to just protect ourselves and have comfortable lives, do we really think that's the best way of living? Are we really that dumb? The best thing that exists in this entire universe is the glory of God. The best thing for you and the best thing for me is for us to glorify God. There is nothing better. Why does God demand that we glorify him? Is it because he's this selfish megalomaniac? No, it's because he's love and us glorifying him is the best thing for us. And so we need to, to do these acts of love, to show hospitality without grumbling, without resentment. 
Because we, we see, here's another opportunity for God to be glorified. Here's another opportunity for someone to be blessed. Maybe God will, will bless me through all of this as well. Not that I'm doing it for, for recompense, but maybe there's an opportunity that God will providentially bring something about. We should never grumble at opportunities to serve and suffer. And that's where he's going to keep going. So let's look at this. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, I don't want to spend too long on this, but I have said again and again and again that First Peter is, is, is written almost as if he had a copy of Ephesians sitting on his desk at the same time. And I'm, and I'm tempted to believe that he did. We could debate that one later. But anyway... It's just so rich from Ephesians. And here, this is Ephesians 4. The, the giving of the Holy Spirit is Christ returning to us in the person of the Holy Spirit that we would have the unity from having the same Holy Spirit and yet at the same time we have diversity because the same Spirit gifts us in different ways. That's the, that is the Christian biblical concept of unity and diversity in the church. We are unified because we have the same Holy Spirit. That's why Pentecostalism is so divisive, because it makes the haves and the have-nots. We who are saved or have the same Holy Spirit, that is what unites us. And yet at the same time, the same Holy Spirit gives us different gifts and that diversifies us. And that's a good thing. Those who know me well know that though I may be gifted in certain areas, that my skill set is astonishingly limited. I mean, I go from being very good at a few things to being utterly useless at the vast majority of things. It's a shame my wife's sick because she'd be giggling hysterically right now because she knows better than anyone how true that is. And so it is impossible for a person like me despite being gifted to be a teacher and a pastor, to pastor a church like this without people surrounding me who have the gifts that I don't have. I warned them at my job interview. I said, I'm good at this stuff, but I'm really not good at this. And they're still learning even now just how serious I was. I'm glad you can smile about it, Bruce. <laughs> I know do as well. So, but... We are gifted in different ways. And so I think that the whole picture of love at this point in the text becomes something that is going to, is going to expand out in such a variety of different ways. And whatever gift we have, we need it to, to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So there will be things that come up I mean, already in this church, when things need to be done, there are certain people we say, ah, oh, let's, let's get so-and-so to help. Partly because they're on this particular committee, partly because we know that, they're, that they're, they're able to do that. And I think that, that there are such a varied range of things that people do. Now, this church always has opportunities for people to serve. And sometimes when you're newer in the faith and you're not sure how you've been gifted or you're new to us and we're not sure how you're gifted, some of those things may seem a little more menial. Um, you know, whether it's um, helping set up a potluck, which we always need people for, whether it's helping with children's ministry, which we always need people for, whether it's doing other various things, there's always opportunities to serve in the church. If you've not read the Bible reading, 
and you want to, come and let me know. I'm always looking for people to do the Bible readings. There's various ways that you can help and serve in this church. And sometimes there's frustrations because you feel you have gifts and they're not being used. But there's always opportunities to serve. And God gives his grace to us, his gifts to us. He gives his spirit to us that we may serve, that we may work. One of the biggest problems that we have the biggest problems that we have in, in expository churches, churches that teach the Bible verse by verse, is people coming in, listening to sermons, saying, oh, I love good teaching, I'm a nice, mature Christian, and then walking out again. Like it's some sort of, you know, cinema. You come in, you have the message, the credits come up at the end, and off you go. That is not church. Church is nothing like that. What happens in the preaching of the word is the equipping, Ephesians 4. It's the equipping of the saints. That's everyone, you and me, everyone here, if we're saved, we're saints. We're made holy by the blood of Christ. The, the preaching equips the saints to go and do the work of ministry. And so we're all ministers and we all need to be serving. And so I, I, I present to you verse 10. And I say to you this, if you're a Christian, you have at least one gift. You have opportunities. You have your, your life, no matter how difficult it may be in, in, in however many ways, there are always opportunities for you to serve others. And I fully understand how there are seasons in people's lives where trials, trauma, and brokenness can make it very hard for them to do the things that they would like to do unto the Lord. But there's always something we can do to serve, even in the midst of those situations. And we need to be seeking to serve one another because God has given us this grace and we are stewards of it. And then he says specifically, verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strengths that God supplies. I think he's doing two things here. Firstly, he's making a reference to elders and deacons. The elders are the ones who have to, by way of qualification, be able to teach. And he's going to be talking about that in chapter 5. We're coming up to that. And so he's preparing the way for that. The word, those who... Um, who serve, that's what the word deacon means. Essentially, you could say those who deacon would deacon a certain way. Deacons mean servants. And um, so he's kind of taking the two offices of a church, elders and deacons, and he's saying you need to do that um, in, in such a way that God is the one who's working. People who teach need to teach the, the words of God. The, the challenge for me as a preacher every single week is to get out of the way of the text. It's just so, I mean, in its most extreme form, you get springboard sermons, you know, where someone's teaching through uh, the Good Samaritan. Oh, and that's about love, is it? Oh, yeah, it's about love. Okay, brilliant. And, and what they do is they read a passage, they mention the text for about one minute, and then they preach a topical sermon on love that really, you know, the text is in the rearview mirror from five minutes in. But... In a less extreme form, it's always tempting. We need to, I need to explain things, and sometimes it's helpful to illustrate things. But I want every week, my goal every week, so you know, is for you to come away so that if you went home and you looked at this same text at home, you'd say, I understand that now. I know what that means. I know what all, all those various words together, I, I know what it's communicating, and, and I know I need to do this. I need to believe this, or, or whatever. 
it's to, just to teach the text. And I think there's this incredible thing here where he says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, that we need to understand the value of our words. Now, at the same time, elders and deacons, there is the implication that this kind of ministry we're all doing. I am not the only one who teaches in this church. And I don't just mean those who step up to the pulpit when I'm away. What I mean is, if you speak a word of encouragement to somebody after church, then you are speaking the oracles of God. And I think this is where we need to be very careful. It's very, very easy in this age of memes and, you know, little quick-witted replies and what have you, that we give people advice, we give people counsel that has more to do with a kind of, you know, Oprah Winfrey chicken soup for the soul, psycho babbly kind of, you know, oh, that makes sense to me stuff, rather than just ministering in the word to one another. One of my great desires for this place is that we would be people who would know our Bibles well enough that we would just leak scripture. We would just kind of ooze it. And I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about, you know, when the girls beat the guys at the Bible trivia in a few weeks. I'm not talking about just kind of memorizing all these kind of verses and what have you. I'm talking about just, just coming to the word again and again and again. And these truths just so impacting our lives that we just, that we just smell of Bible. Do you know what I mean? My, my grandmother... God bless her. She had a nose for garlic. If you had a dish with half a clove of garlic in it, like two days previously, and you came to visit her and gave her a kind of kiss, she'd be, oh, you're eating garlic. And she'd kind of, kind of keep your arm's width away. She could, she could smell it like a mile off, even if you'd eaten it three days before. You know, we need to stink of Bible. Because we're eating it all the time. We're, we're chowing down on solid scripture. So that when we speak to one another, the things that we're saying are not ideas we've picked up from nice articles that somebody linked to on Facebook. They're not things that we're picking up from something that we heard or, or a quote from a favorite TV show or, or a line from a cool song. But we're just speaking scripture. Because the words of man will come and go, but the words of God will produce fruit forever. So when we speak to one another, let's speak the oracles of God. I need to wrap up. So let's just move through quickly here to the end. So when we serve, we're going to serve in the strength that God supplies. The indwelling Holy Spirit does not just gift us, but he gives us the strength, the power. That's Ephesians 1. Those on Tuesday night, we were talking about that. Um, this last week, that God supplies the strength, he supplies the words through his word and, uh, for us to speak, he supplies the strength for us to serve, so that, in order that, in everything, may, may, uh, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The end game here is the glory of God. There is nothing better, and there is nothing greater, and there is nothing more majestic, there is nothing better for you, there is no end, there is no goal, there is no desire that is better than God being glorified through Jesus Christ. Nothing. And we, we have to understand this. We, we've got to get it. 
See, there's Moses, Exodus 33 and 34. And he goes to see God and speak with God. God manifests himself to him in a way that nobody else had. And what does he request? Show me your glory. The more we see God, the more we should want to see God. Do you know, and don't take this too specifically, and maybe don't quote me on it precisely, but if somebody is tempted to commit adultery, I mean, yes, they have a lust problem, almost certainly, but that's not their biggest problem. The biggest problem is they don't see who Jesus is. The biggest problem is that they can't see the glory of God in being faithful in a difficult marriage rather than satisfying oneself with dirty water. Whenever we stumble in sin, it's because we've forgotten how wonderful our God is. There is nothing better for us than to glorify God. You may walk through a life of so much suffering, of so much pain, of so much trauma, and of so much tragedy, and all you want is for that to be taken away from you. And yet God, in his goodness, says, I have something so much better for you. Glorify my name. And as we've seen again and again in 1 Peter, we've just got to trust him. And why do we trust him? Because to him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And the people said, Amen. It's his. He on the cross conquered sin and death. He on the cross showed that he could be trusted. He on the cross took away every excuse, every, every possibility for us to think that God is anything less than sovereign, that he's anything less than good, that he's anything less than merciful. Any, any excuse to think that way was removed at the cross. The cross, as John tells us, is Jesus expressing the glory of God in a way that is greater than ever had been seen before. That when we come to the cross, we see Jesus Christ glorified. We see him as the one who has conquered sin and death, that has conquered everything in the seen realm and the unseen realm. And so we trust him. So it now seems to me to be a very appropriate time for us to come to the cross together in communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much. We thank you so much for your, your sovereign goodness towards us. I know that there are many here who struggle. There are many here who have suffered in such great ways, in such a plethora of ways. And yet, in loving one another, that we want to always ease pain and ease suffering where we can. 
We want to encourage one another that our God is good. Our God is sovereign. Our God is working all things together for his glory through Jesus Christ. May we trust you. May we trust you. Amen.